Let's pray and ask God to bless His Word. Father, we are so, so thankful that we actually have life. Lord, we also know the pain of death. We see it around us. We experience it in our lives. We experience it in ones we love. And we see death in this world, and death is ugly. Death is brutal. Death is horrible. And somehow we want it to end. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you're the victor. You've conquered death and brought new life. How good you are. And I pray that this morning, O Lord, that we would see this. We would see your glory. We would see your power. We would see this morning that you indeed have been risen from the dead and have brought new life. For Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, I want to do something this morning that I haven't done before in regard to the Easter service and Resurrection Sunday. I want to present to you the evidence regarding the resurrection of Jesus. I want to present some arguments. Can, can Jesus' Jesus's resurrection be proved historically, factually, as a thing that happened in t- time and in space that nobody can refute? And my goal here this morning is to either strengthen your faith, if you already believe that Jesus has indeed raised from the dead, or it is to bring faith, where we can look and we could say, He indeed has, and therefore I believe. And because you can see from the evidence that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, I want that to stir your hearts. I want that to bring praise to your lips and thankfulness. Because Jesus is indeed risen from the dead. This is no game we're playing. This is no little fun thing we're doing every you know, every time we gather to praise Jesus because he's alive from the dead. And I think as we look at the evidence, it becomes very compelling. Now, I'm not going to go through every single argument there is out there. There's lots of stuff, and I'm I'm not going to handle every single objection. But there's plenty that we can look at, plenty of arguments that are firmly established that we can say, yes, indeed, this happened, and here is the evidence. And to begin with this morning, we're going to look at this fact, the simple fact of the empty tomb. And this is important, and you're going to see why. The tomb was empty. In John chapter 20, it was read for us this morning, beginning at verse 1 through 9. I'm just going to read those verses again. It says, Now in the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. And the first day of the week for the Jews is what day? Sunday. Sunday. So their week ends on Saturday. The first day of the week is Sunday. The, the, the Sabbath was on Saturday. The first day of the week where they get going again was, was Sunday. And so on this day, this, this Sunday morning, which is also do you get, what's happened on this day, the reason why this day is significant, it's the beginning of a new feast. The, first, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread has now uh, culminated, and now the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of First Fruits, begins. First Fruits, that's very significant. The first of the fruits has come out of the ground. So he raises on the first day the first fruits. So she ran and went to Simon and Peter. Well, she saw that the the tomb had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon and Peter and the other disciples, the other, sorry, disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. 
So Peter went out with the other disciple, and then as they were going, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I like how John talks about himself in the third person, this other disciple. That says, well, I outran Peter and got there first. But he says, the other disciple, his humility is coming through. So, uh, but both, so both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and they reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothing there, but he did not go in. And this I also love. He beats Peter there. He's the first, Peter, first one there. But who do you think the first one to go in is? Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He's always been the bold one. John was a little intimidated. John was standing back and thinking, that's weird. Peter didn't care. He burst right in. So he saw the linen clothes lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Interesting details. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw, and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures, that he must be raised from the dead. They still did not know this, and this is still confounding to them, and they still can't put it all together. The text goes on to talk about Mary Magdalene weeping and weeping. They've stolen the body of Jesus. Oh, no. My Lord, what happened? But even though the gospel explains the day of the empty tomb from different perspectives, the different gospels, if you go to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's different accounts from different perspectives and different varying degrees of detail. But the one thing is certain in all of them is this, that the tomb was empty. This is the central to all the gospel accounts. Now the question is, was the tomb really empty? Or was there some reasonable story that could have caused this to have been fabricated? First of all, if this was fabricated, the apostles made a foolish decision. And why do I say that? Because the very first place they preached this story was in Jerusalem, where it actually happened. Now, they didn't go to some strange and foreign city where it would be hard to confirm. They said this, and they declared this, that Jesus, the tomb was empty, and he's no longer there, he's risen, and he declared, they declared it in the very place that he had been buried, to the very people that had, that had witnessed this, the very people that had put him in the tomb. So that was, a very diff- that was a very brave and brazen and strange thing to do because it's be incredibly hard to hide evidence. As Paul Elphus writes, the resurrection proclamation could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. And in fact, the earliest Jew- Jewish arguments against the Christian faith admit that there was an empty tomb. But they came up with a story in regard to the empty tomb. Both extra-biblical evidence and the text itself of Scripture writes to testify to the fact that the Jews were explaining the empty tomb by saying that the disciples stole the body. In Matthew 28, 11-13, it says, Some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while he was sleeping. So this is the story that spread throughout. The disciples stole him. So the fact that Jesus was no longer in his tomb 
was realized by everyone in Jerusalem at that time. Here's an established fact. Jesus was no longer in the tomb. So, Jews, Gentiles, Christians, everybody was proclaiming the same thing. The tomb was empty. And because of the strong evidence for this, it's rare to find even any scholar who would attempt to deny the empty tomb. One such scholar, D.H. Von Dahlen, has said that it's extremely difficult to object to the empty tomb on historical grounds. Those who deny it do so on the basis of theological or philosophical, philosophical assumptions. The historical validity of Jesus' Jesus's body being gone is, the, is a fact that has been firmly established by all the evidence. But now we have to ask another question. Okay, so the tomb was empty. Now, what happened to his body? And this is where we begin to look at the actual historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Because according to eyewitnesses, several hundred people had actually, actually encountered the risen Jesus. According to John's personal eyewitness testimony back in John chapter 20, here's what they experienced. John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. On the evening of that day, that first day, first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So they're afraid. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So John is personally saying that Mary and other, all, the 11 other disciples saw Jesus alive. We witnessed him. We saw him. And they also knew that he was dead. Now, just because John and the other 11 disciples say they saw Jesus, that he was raised from the dead, doesn't mean that it actually happened, right? They said that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it happened. There are possible options for this. And some, they've, some have testified that, yeah, they were lying, or they created a myth. Or that they, they could have been hallucinating, and not in their right minds, because of their grief. Or there's another theory that says Jesus was in some kind of a coma, the swoon theory. And that he came out of that and, and then he got out of the tomb by himself. Now I'm going to look at all three of these, but I'm going to start with the last one first. To say that Jesus didn't actually die, the swoon theory. But he went into some kind of coma. I think it's actually crazy. Because here's why. Jesus could not have survived crucifixion. And, and it's because the Romans were very careful to eliminate the possibility their law demanded the death penalty be, go to any guard who did not fully see that the, that criminal was put to death. They would themselves would have to die. It was a serious matter. It was a capital crime. The other thing would be a capital crime is if you messed up the crucifixion somehow. You botched it. It really didn't work. So the fact that the Roman soldiers did not break did not break Jesus' legs, but they broke the other two criminals' legs, means that the soldier had to be convinced that Jesus was dead. But then just to make sure, he takes a spear and stabs it into Jesus' side. It probably pierces his lungs or his heart. And just to make sure he's finished off. And then they take him, according to John's witness, and then they, they've wrapped him in, in, 
in burial cloths. And it's just not just one little wrapping. It's like a swaddling cloth of a baby, you know, arms to the side, legs to the side, and they wrap them up nice and tightly, so much so, that, so much so that you can pretty much carry them by head and foot. He's wrapped up. His head's wrapped up. It's not too easy to get out of that situation. If you have siblings, just try it on one another. You can't. So somehow then, this, if he was half dead, this half dead Jesus wakes up. He's put in a tomb. He's put in a tomb with a, but approximately a two-ton stone rolled in front of it, and there's two guards. So this Jesus, who's been put on a cross, been beaten, been scourged, been almost put to death before he gets on the cross, been pierced in his side, he, he's in no good shape, no matter how you slice it. He's, if, if he isn't dead or if he's half dead, he's barely hanging on. So somehow this Jesus gets out of these, these burial clothes. He moves a two-ton rock away, stone, and he takes on two guards. Now, if you believe that, then you've just confirmed that he truly is God in the flesh. <laughs> and he might as well just have raised from the dead. It's no, no different. That's, that's more than impressive. That is something only God could do because that's not going to happen. This whole idea does not stand the test of how skilled the Roman soldiers were at putting people to death, nor does it stand the test of the evidence when you look at it and saying it's just it's not a possibility for any, any human ever to do that, what was accomplished. And so secondly, I want us to look at this next theory that some have put together, and it's called hallucination. The disciples were so aggrieved that they were in a state of um, not proper state mentally and so they were probably hallucinating and they said that they saw Jesus when in fact they didn't and if one is actually serious about this theory they have to consider something about hallucination because you need to understand that medically hallucinations are private they're individual and they're subjective experiences to the individual themselves however what just happened was objective and it was communal and it was experienced by everybody at the same time. That never, ever happens with any kind of hallucination. We know that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, to the disciples, to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, to the fishermen on the shore, to James, his, either his brother or cousin, to 500 people at once, and even then to Paul himself several years later, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8. Hallucinations cannot explain the physical nature of these appearances either. So not only was he seen, he was actually, more than that happened, Thomas touched him, so did the other disciples. Peter and John ate fish with Jesus, and Mary Magdalene clung to Jesus. And, and these particular things never, ever happened with hallucinations. It's never been recorded once that you actually, the thing that you're hallucinating, you can't touch. So the evidence soundly puts the hallucinary, uh, the hallucinary, the hallucination theory to rest. Now, the last possible theory is that the disciples actually lied about this whole thing and created some myth that got spread. But the problem you run into with this theory is that why would 10 of the disciples be willing to give their lives to the point of death for it? Now, if you're making up some lie, you don't go to death for it. Now, people, I'll grant you this. People will go to death for a lie, but they have to believe it's true. 
Just look at the Muslims nowadays. They believe that uh, they're going to please Allah, that they're going to go to this wonderful paradise and they're going to get a bunch of virgins in heaven. And so they go and blow themselves up. They believe a lie and they're willing to live according to it. But if you believed it were a lie, no chance. That's not going to happen. People will not die for a lie if they know it to be a lie that they fabricated. Blaise Pascal puts it this way. The hypothesis that the apostles were knaves is quite absurd. Follow it, knaves meaning liars, basically. Follow it out to the end and imagine these 12 men meeting after Jesus' death and conspiring to say that he has risen from the dead. This means attacking all the powers that be. The human heart is singularly susceptible to fickleness, to change, to promises, to bribery. One of them had only to deny his story under these inducements or still more because of possible imprisonment, tortures, and death, and they would have all been lost. Follow that out. End quote. Peter Kreft has added to this line of reasoning by saying this. The cruncher, quote-unquote, in this argument is the historical fact that no one, weak or strong, saint or sinner, Christian or heretic, ever confessed freely or under pressure bribe or even torture that the whole story of the resurrection was a fake, a lie, or deliberate deception. Not one. And just think of all the Christians who have died for their faith, and on the other hand, all the Christians who've buckled for their faith. Think of all the ones who've caved. They've given in to the pressure or the torture or the thought of death, and they've denied Jesus, and then they went after some other God or served some other Lord. Just think of those people. In no case do you have any of them denying the resurrection. They denied their loyalty to Jesus, yes. They submitted to some other Lord, yes. But they didn't deny the resurrection. So clearly, this can't be no fabrication of the apostles. That doesn't stand the test of logical reasoning of the way that we're made as people, as humans. This is the established fact throughout history that this is what the church has based itself on. And that's what I want to finish here this morning showing. That the, 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 the church, the very foundation stone of the church is the resurrection. This is the, the basis of the Christian faith. You take it away and you have nothing. In fact, listen to Paul, what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and following. He says, now I want to remind you, brothers, remind you of the gospel I preached to you when you received it in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered of you of the first importance what, also, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, when Paul was writing this, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, to the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some in the, Corinth, in the Corinthian church were actually saying that. Says, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. It's the foundation, it's the basis upon which the Christian faith is based. So as you can see, this resurrection idea is not some later development of the Christian faith or some myth that got going. It's at its very core. It's what established it. It's the central to our hope. This is the reason why the disciples didn't disperse and go their own way. It's the reason why Jesus' power, Jesus, sorry, death has power. It's the reason why there is hope for you and me today. It's the very reason why you and me are sitting here today and we believe in Jesus, not because he's some dead hero that's like, man, he's a good guy. He, you know, he did a lot of nice things and he's sure worth following because he's like Gandhi, good man going everywhere, doing good things. And who else was like Jesus? We might as well band together and say we're followers of Jesus. No. It's because he actually not just died for our sins, but he rose again from the dead. Jesus took on the enemy. The, and I want to say the enemy. You know, the enemy of all humanity from the very beginning. You know, the greatest enemy that we faced. What do we hate more than anything else is death. What are we afraid of more than anything else? Death. What do we try to conquer more than anything else is death. What's the biggest problem we have in this life is the fact that we we have to face that scary monster one day and we don't know what it's going to be like. Just have someone hold a gun to your head and just think of the prospects of dying and say, hey, does this sound like fun? No, it doesn't sound like fun at all. Why? Because I I don't like death. Who likes death? You know, like we have volunteers. Some crazy man in the back. (laughs) Death has a very serious sting to it. And from the beginning of time, it has been universally feared and hated. And to take on death is the whole reason why Jesus came to this earth. He came to take on sin and death, to save us from the sin that caused the death. And then in both sin and death being defeated, he destroys the power of the devil who uses sin and death. The worst enemies that you face, the reason why your body is getting older, if you're getting older, are you feeling the pains in your body? Do you like aging? Do you like things being sore? Why is that happening? Was sin brought death? And you're experiencing death in your body. We're we're decaying. Guess where we're headed? I don't care who's, how hard you try. Guess where you're headed? You're headed to the grave. One step at a time, right? Away you go. And you can resist all you want. Fight as you may. Strong as you are, it's going to get you. Now, there's good news. There's hope. Because Jesus is indeed raised from the dead. This is our hope. He's the first fruits. He's the first one. And later, those who are his at his coming are raised to new life. Jesus took care of sin on the cross. He took care of death in his resurrection. And he destroyed the power of, of the devil through it all. 
It was Jesus rising from the dead that delivered the knockout punch. That kaboom, for all of eternity, everything has changed. It was so powerful, such a massive blow that as, as Mike uh, told us this morning, it's recorded in Matthew, many were popping up from the grave. It's good night, sin and death. You lost. Jesus won the victory. And this is why the Christian faith, if it ever moves forward through the ages, it's got to be based upon this. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the central point. That he's come to save us from sin and from death and from the devil, the trifecta of our enemies. this, This horrible thing that's got us all. He's come to deliver salvation to the world. And so now Jesus' promise, he says, I have promised, I've come that you might have life and have it everlasting. Now who doesn't want everlasting life in bliss and in glory? Jesus offers to the world, he says, I've, I've come, I've conquered, and I've done this for the salvation of the world. And it's the foundation of our faith. It's the centerpiece. Come all, come one, come all, it doesn't matter. Sinners, all you out there who think you're too bad for God, well, Jesus came for you. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. It's not the righteous that he came for, it's the unrighteous. Come, sinners, come. All you who think that you're not good enough for God, you're the perfect. Because he says, I've paid the price for your sin, and I've taken care of the death it caused. I've, I've annihilated it all. There's not, not a thing standing in the way now. Come. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, as Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians, we of all people are to be basically laughed at. What a bunch of fools. That we would give so much and endure so much and subject ourselves to so much and it all be for nothing? He says, are you stupid? Go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. This is all you got. You might as well just get her done. Professor Thomas Arnold, author of the famous History of Rome, and appointed to the chair of modern history at Oxford, was well acquainted with the value of evidence in determining historical facts. Here's what he said about the resurrection of Jesus. I've been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. So the question is, what does this mean for you? Well, if you believe, you need to turn to Jesus and say thank you. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for defeating death. Thank you for giving me hope. Thank you for eternal life I now have because of you. Thank you. Thank you that when you return, I too will be raised from the dead and I'll receive an immortal body, a glorious body, just like yours was. Thank you. John 3.16 says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish. He means perish eternally, be gone. But have eternal life. 
For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that, order that the world might be saved through Him. That's why He sent Him. And so if you're here this morning and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you believe that He was indeed raised from the dead, Jesus says, life eternal is yours. To as many as believed that He indeed is the Son of God, that He indeed went to the cross for our sins, that He indeed died in, in the tomb, that He indeed rose again from the dead, this is it. Believe that. And Jesus says, God so loved the world that He gave His Son for this very purpose. You believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He says, life eternal is yours. You know, for those who believe, the life you live now, the pain and the aging and the sorrows and the suffering you experience now, this is your hell. But afterwards, when you've been with Jesus for a million years in glorious bliss and you look back and say, what was I so freaked out about? What was I so bothered about? Look at... I mean, in perspective, what was the... If I had 80 years of sorrow, it's hard to remember them in light of eternity. I pray that this life, with all of its pains and with all of its sorrow, with all of its aches, with all of its aging, will be a continuous prod to you. A prod to keep your eyes on the resurrection. That's what I'm looking forward to. You know, as, as life kicks your butt, often you look for answers, you look for hope, right? And if, if you're looking for all the answers, if you're looking for all the hope, if you're looking for everything and everything you're looking for is in this life, boy, man, that's just, that's too bad because it's, it's short. You don't know when it's going to end. But when you look into Jesus and your hope is, you're, what you're excited about is the day that will come when this the suffering, the sorrow, the pain will be put off. And what awaits is life eternal, glorious life. Now that's a hope worth waiting for. Now that's, that's a life that's, that's worth even dying for. So that's what, that's what Jesus is offering. Life eternal. And you know Why? Do you know why we can have this hope? Do you know why we can live this way? Do you know why we can be excited about the life that has come? Do you know why this can be the thing that keeps us driving forward? Because Jesus was indeed raised from the dead. Historical fact, he's been raised from the dead. He's conquered the enemy and Jesus turns and he says, All of you who will come to me, I will give life to you. He didn't come to live and to die and to raise again for himself to say that was a fun experience. He did it so that the, you and me could know life and life eternal with him and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Glorious, glorious resurrection life. So my prayer is, prayer is that today you would know and delight in and rejoice in the power of the resurrection. It's your hope. It's your joy.
It's your life. And because of that, may you have a happy resurrection day. Amen. Father, thank you so much. Thank you. You raised your son from the dead. Lord Jesus, you are truly God. You are the son of God who come to take away the sin of the world. We praise you. We thank you for your grace and your love toward us that knowing that while we were yet sinners, you, Christ Jesus, you died for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We might be brought into your presence. We might know your glory, your goodness, your power, your love, and your grace. We praise you for your kindness. We praise you that you're, you're not dead but living. And today we celebrate this Easter season, the fact that death has lost its sting, has lost its power, and you, Lord Jesus, have gained the victory. Blessed be your name forever. Amen.